And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with Paul Wallace, The Eden Conspiracy. That's his latest work. Paul, you're not alone in your thoughts. Graham Hancock believes that the previous civilizations have been here to help mankind as well. Yes, he does. I love his work. There is evidence all around the world of cultures, civilizations that predate everything we know about human history. So prior to 10,000 years ago, the sea levels were quite different. They were much lower. And when they were much lower, they would have revealed cities off the coast of uh, India, off the coast of Malta, uh, off the coast of Cuba, off the coast of Japan. And I love how Graham joins the dots and says there's a civilization before that we never learned about at school. And I find the evidence for that in the Bible as well. I think by the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, you've probably read about five planetary resets that would have almost obliterated the civilizations that were here previously. So in the Bible, it's just little hints. But I love how Graham joins the dots and shows us that the story of life on Earth as a civilization is far older than we think. Last hour, I had asked you if they had left and why. Maybe they're still here. What do you think? I think some are still here. I think uh, some of the demographics who are on our side have remained interested and involved for tens of thousands of years. And I think one of the reasons the Galactic Federation, to use Hermes Shedd's word, has been so stable is because we do have friends in high places, so to speak, that they're is an agreement of non-disclosure because those who want to protect us from too heavy an involvement uh, at the moment, I think, seem to have the upper hand. But there's always a leakage in terms of uh, the disclosure, non-disclosure agreement because there are sightings and encounters in every generation. But I do think we have support that's been around for a very, very long time. I think you're right, Paul. It's truly remarkable. Let's take some calls here for you. Let's go to a first-time caller, Alice in Las Vegas. Welcome to the program. Hi, Alice. Hi, how are you? Good to have you with us. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to say that Paul, I think, has uh, uh, presented some conjectures, a lot of conjectures and um, opinions because he has no proof. When he talks about Ashtaroth in the Bible, uh, as a person who, as a god, I mean, she is presented as a god, and he says that uh, Solomon uh, worshipped her. Well, Solomon turned away from Father God, and because of his marriage to the concubines and the wives, he, he said his heart was turned to other gods. So he worshipped Asheroth, and he, he worshipped other gods besides her. He worshipped Baal, and Father God told the people, you're not supposed to worship anybody but me. And I think Paul is this. He disagrees with the narrative in the Bible, so that's why he comes up with these these views that <clears throat> Ashtaroth was this pers- this god who helped the people, helped them with their farming, and they he, they were a god. She was a god goddess who who um, was against Father God. All right, and let's get his take George, on that. George what? should have should have uh, uh, Jonathan Khan on. Who wrote the book Return? Oh yeah, God. he he's been on with me before. But Paul, I want you to rebut. Go ahead. Well, Alice, thank you for that comment. And Alice is quite right that that is the opinion of the narrator 
when he describes, for instance, the kings who built installations for Asherah. So that's Solomon, that's Ahab, that's Manasseh. But at the same time, the narrator is describing what they did and what the cultic practice was. And what he says the original belief was of the tribes of Israel was a positive memory of these interventions. And that story overlaps with ancestral narratives all around the world. And so the books I write, they really aren't about proof in a scientific or legal sense. They're saying, let's listen to what our ancestors said. Let's see where these stories overlap. And let's see if we can find any evidence in the present day that corroborate these stories. And so the memory that the narrators of the Bible describe is a memory that repeats all around the world. And so really, I'm affirming what the narrator is saying there. But Alice is right that when the narrator then says that should all be forgotten and should all be obliterated uh, by monotheism, that's where I disagree, because my faith in God is not obliterated by acknowledging that we live in a populated universe. And that is the same as the ancient Hebrew belief. Paul, who do you believe Lucifer might have been in the Bible? Some fallen uh, extraterrestrial or what? The Lucifer story is absolutely fascinating. Obviously, it's a name that terrifies a lot of people when they hear it because it's a word associated with the devil, with Satan, with anti-God. But in the work I've done, I've found that many of the biblical stories are a retelling of the ancient stories from out of Sumeria, Babylonia, Arcadia, and Assyria. And many of those stories are not about God, anti-God. They're actually about conflicts among the ETs who visited us in the deep past, the wars that they experienced, the conflicts that they had over how to manage Project Earth. And I think some of the Lucifer stories are part of that strand of narrative. We're taking calls this hour with Paul Wallace, author of the Eden series. The last one is called The Eden Conspiracy. Let's go to Frank in Hollywood, Maryland. Hey, Frank, go ahead. Howdy, George. Glad to be back with you. Thank you, sir. What I'd like to know is the number of people of the world, when they find out that the UFOs exist, and I mean when they, they know for sure, like when a UFO crash lands in North Africa, United States and Russia are going to claim it's their experimental vehicle. When they find out for sure, how many of, of the people of the world won't be able to handle it? And the number of government officials that couldn't handle it and committed suicide over the years. And then the thing about the uh, Big Bang, until someone proves to me otherwise, why couldn't it be God's hand that started the Big Bang? Because... Before the planets and the sun was uh, formed, there was nothing but a cold, dark nothingness. So if a cold, dark nothingness was here and always will be, why can't we have an almighty God that always was and always will be? Well, if you accept the Bible, that's absolutely true. But, Paul, you want to react to some of the things he's asked? Well, Frank, I agree with what you're saying. I, I think the Big Bang story is not an anti-God story at all. We're, when we talk about Big Bang, we're really just trying to understand the, the mechanisms right. through a scientific viewpoint. But I, I think, yes, I think 
the universe had a beginning. I think God, God is the name and the word I use to explain that beginning. But then understanding how it worked is, is a whole other thing. And the other point that you mentioned, I've just forgotten what the other half was of what you said. It was to do with people panicking, whether they could handle suddenly being aware of contact. I think my personal view is that more people have worked out that we're in contact than we generally acknowledge. But one of the reasons I'm so eager to produce my books, the Eden series, is that I find in the Bible and in ancestral narratives, there's a heap of information there designed to prepare people for contact so that we're not panicked when we realize it's a populated universe. And I think if we listen to ancestral narratives with more respect and did more translation work with the Bible, we would not be surprised if we're suddenly having close encounters or mass sightings because our ancestors were perfectly aware of it. It's why I think retranslating the Tseva Hashemayim is important or the Sky Council is important because the Bible prepares the reader for living in a populated cosmos. They wanted us not to be freaked out by it. I think most people would say, I knew it. I don't think yes, they'd I be think freaked so. out. Do you? I, I totally agree. They may be upset because governments have held back, but they'd still say, I knew it. Uh, well, yes, I think that's why what we're getting is this soft disclosure so that drip by drip the information comes out so that people gradually come to the conclusion. I think our governments want to avoid that very percussive moment of saying we've been keeping secrets because of the political fallout, the lack of trust that we would then have in our authorities. So I think that's why the soft disclosure route is the one being taken. Next up, we've got Mary in New Jersey. Welcome to the program. Hi, Mayor. Hello. Hello, George. Hello, Paul. I have a question. Hi, Mary. Uh, sure. All right, a Bible question. Christ is on the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king and priest of Salem. He met Abraham on the way after a battle. He gave him wine and uh, bread. Um, do you have any more insight? Who exactly is Melchizedek? Oh, Melchizedek is such an intriguing figure because he sort of appears in the Bible story without any introduction, other than we're told he's the king of Salem. And so we assume that's, that's the case. He's a human king of Salem, and yet Abraham venerates him. Why is it because he's come close to his territory? Is it because he's especially powerful? We're not really told. But one of the significances of Melchizedek in the Bible story is that Melchizedek is recognized as having some kind of a connection with God, and yet he stands outside of the Abrahamic tradition. And so that's just a little clue there in the Bible to say that connection with God is not the exclusive preserve of any one traditional people group. It's not the monopoly of the Abrahamic religions. Abraham recognized Melchizedek. And so once you've discovered him, you begin looking for evidence of connection with God all around the world and in every people group. And many missionaries have made a big deal of Melchizedek for exactly that reason. They go to unreached people groups and find, oh, they actually know... 50% of what I was going to tell them already. And uh, Melchizedek, I think, is a figure that represents that connection with God that all humanity shares. Was it the Eric von Donneken books and his work 
that initially got you into this as you were talking about, Paul? What was the moment that you said, I'm going to study this? When I was 11, I picked up Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken, and what touched me was I felt that he had put his finger on something that I'd noticed at school, whether I was listening to religious explanations of human origins or scientific explanations, there was a gap in our ability to explain ourselves. We're ill-adapted to our planet. The only reason we're the alpha species is because of higher intelligence, higher consciousness. You know, without being able to build a shelter or a weapon or a fire, we're in trouble in the wilderness. So how did we get the intelligence and consciousness? Science couldn't tell me. Religion couldn't tell me. Eric von Daniken said our evolution makes better sense if we allow for the possibility of external help, external interventions. And I felt that that matched what we know about human history better. So that always sat with me. And I... I, just niggled away at me for decades, that I have to get back to that, and I have to test that. And once the colloquium had happened in 2009, where we had Catholic figures saying there are ETs in the Bible, I, I, knew, I thought someone is going to write a book about this, and it needs to be me, because I had a passion, a fire in my belly by that point. And uh, you picked at least a great book to follow up on. Thank you very much. What do you think of the work of the late Zechariah Sitchin? Well, it's funny. When I wrote Escaping from Eden, which is my first book about paleo contact, I'd never heard of Zechariah Sitchin. And it was only as I came towards the end of my research path and producing that book that I discovered him. And I thought, oh, there's somebody else who's come to very similar conclusions. Should I stop and read everything he wrote before continuing? And I decided, no, I won't do that because I don't want to write a he said, she said kind of book. I've got my data. I'm applying my logic from my skills in hermeneutics. If I reach similar conclusions to Sitchin, it's then much more interesting to the reader to find people coming from completely different start points and landing on the same page. If we overlap, we sort of corroborate each other. And so I really value Sitchin uh, from that point of view. But he was very important because he really showed the world the ET implications of the ancient Sumerian narratives. Text and tweets, what do you have for Paul, Tom? Hey, Paul, Cynthia in Nebraska wants to know if you think that the human potential is something that most people do not reach in their lives. Yes, I do, because I think we're simply not told about it. It's another reason I love these uh, world ancestral narratives, because when they talk about human origins, They all talk about a moment where our ancestors were smarter than we are now. So they had far sight, remote viewing, future sight, precognition, empathy, telepathy, better self-healing. And many narratives around the world, whether it's the Mayan story or the epic story from Nigeria or the story of Zeus and Prometheus or the story of Genesis 11 uh, and the Tower of Babel, there's a moment where we're dumbed down. But the way we're dumbed down is by things being put into the environment that will damage our health and mental health. And the positive take-home from those stories is that if we pay attention to a clean environment and a clean diet, we can expect our brains to start operating better. And there are shamanic and mystical protocols curated by cultures all around the world designed to help us get our brains working better. 
so that we again can enjoy better remote viewing, better precognition, etc. But, you know, many of the stories we grow up with in school and in church don't tell us that we are capable of more. But our ancestral stories say that we are. And that's why I love shining a light on them. Paul, what was it about the Bible that convinced you that we are not alone? I think it was the the overlap of stories, because the way I used to read the Bible, it was the Bible against the world. It was the Bible against every other culture. But when I did the translation work going back to root meanings, I found that its stories of beginnings run in parallel with ancestral narratives all around the world. They parallel the Mayan stories, the epic stories, the Greek stories, the Sumerian, the Babylonian, so on and so forth. And it was when I saw the overlaps between the biblical narratives and these other ones that I thought, these are memories. These are not invented stories that are just coincidentally similar around the world. All these cultures have seen and heard the same thing, and they found a way of preserving that memory. And it was the overlap that convinced me I had to read these differently and take it as cultural memory. What do you think of the Roswell crash in 1947? I think it is one of the most important incidents in modern history. I absolutely applaud the work of the late Ed Mitchell, who shone a light on the witness testimony. And he was born out there, by the way. He was a local. That's right. So he wanted to honor the locals and uh, the old folk among whom he'd grown up who before they died, so many of them wanted to get off their chests what they'd been too frightened to share because they'd been threatened by their own military. And he put the stories together, and we now have a lot of eyewitness testimony from that crash that gives us a very strong indication we've had contact and technology sharing from that time to this. And I think anyone who pays any attention to that story will realize it's not an invention, but the whole town carries a memory of what happened, and it informs us that we're not alone. We're getting some emails, Paul, from people who want to know if they can email you through your website. Can, yes. If you go to paulanthonywallace.com, Anthony with an H and Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com, there's a contact tab, and you can reach me through that. People do that all the time. If you want to do coaching with me, go to my website, and I'll meet you there. Super. Paul, we're going to come back and take final calls with you in a moment. Paul Wallace with us, The Eden Conspiracy. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie back with Paul Wallace, author of The Eden Conspiracy, and we'll take your calls as well. Paul, what do you think is the most logical explanation behind the existence and visitations of ETs? I am a great enthusiast for the theory of panspermia. And that is a belief held by many eminent scientists in the field of Uh, genetics, DNA study. It's the idea that the genetic coding for biological conscious life is as much a part of the properties of the universe as the properties of light or gravity. And that whenever that genetic coding lands in an hospitable environment, a planet with water, it will generate forms of life similar to the ones that have grown up here. And so that's an explanation that sees life as the norm in the cosmos rather than the exception. And you will naturally expect life to have started earlier in some places than others. So it means there's a cosmic family that fills the cosmos, that those who visit us 
are ultimately related to us. They may be a more ancient species or one that's developed technology faster than we have, but ultimately all life in the universe is the result of the same cosmic seeding. And that's why we should expect contact. Back to the phones, Joe in Long Island, east of the Rockies. Hey, Joe, go ahead. Yeah, how you doing? Uh, my question would be, uh, mainly, you know, you were talking about angels and uh, flesh and blood. Now, what would you speculate? Why would they just not say, hey, I'm an angel? You know, if they're going to help you fix a flat tire, then maybe disappear suddenly then that kind of shows you that. But, you know, it's like a hint. But what would you say about that? Why wouldn't they just be plain and identify themselves? Well, I'm or... not sure they have identified themselves. What do you think, Paul? Well, I, I agree with Joe's question because it's not hard to find people who have angel stories, whether they use the word angel or, or not. They'll talk about somebody appearing from out of the blue. And miracles. In a desperate situation. Yeah. That's right. Miraculously helping them, you know, replacing a tire when they're out in the wilderness, that kind of story. And uh, so Joe's asking, why don't they just identify themselves and say, hey, I'm an angel, I'm here to help you. I don't really know other than... I do think the policy of non-disclosure has been set not by human governments, but by our ET visitors. So I think there's this rule of non-interference, non-disclosure. So maybe that's why they don't announce themselves. But when they arrive from out of the blue, help you miraculously and disappear, I think we could probably join the dots. Possibly. What if they're tricksters, Paul? Well, I, this, this, most of the stories I hear are actually stories of help, where all that's happened is somebody was in trouble and they got assistance. They didn't have food, they got food. They didn't have shelter, they found shelter. Their vehicle was broken down, it was repaired. It's amazing how prolific these stories are, and stories of healing as well. You know, babies who the hospital couldn't help, and then some strange figure appears, and overnight the baby recovers. So these, again, they're, they're, they're not Mars attacks. They're not invasion of the body snatchers. They're stories of positive help and company that is supportive of the human experience. West of the Rockies, McKinley's with us in California. Hi, McKinley. Well, thank you for the opportunity, George. That helps so many people. Thank hey, you. Uh, regarding a populated universe or, or a universe that's populated, it's not only with individuals but with governments is uh, borne out by the fact that in two letters written to the Colossians and the uh, and the Ephesians uh, centuries ago uses the phrase governments and authorities principalities and powers in heavenly places and then also the first chapter in the first chapter in the first verse of the book of Hebrews it mentions about a son through whom all things were created. Uh, and, and it says he created the worlds, plural, he, the worlds, plural. And finally, uh, that person is mentioned in the book of Micah, who, who spoke about his uh, coming to this planet in the form of a babe that would be born in Bethlehem. And he said regarding that babe, it says, whose going forth has been 
from of old. His going going forth from of old. So he had he has been had been going forth to other places before he came to this planet. Interesting take. What do you think of that, Paul? Oh, McKinley, what you said is so interesting. We could talk for hours on the topics you've raised. I think you're quite right that there is language in the New Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that do make reference to a much more developed understanding of the cosmos, an understanding of dimensions, an understanding of authorities out there in deep space. The Apostle Paul uses that language, as you referred to, in the Hebrew Scriptures, we've got the Tseva Hashemayim, we've got the El Badat, which is the Council of Powers. I think you're right. There's much more there than we commonly spot, that says not only is there life, but there are authorities and powers that we're bumping up against in our experience of life on Earth. And then the other thing you mentioned that's absolutely fascinating is the layer of precognition in the scriptures themselves. And my wonder at the Hebrew scriptures only grows and grows because I realize there are layers and layers of information in it. There's the familiar stories, which is the narrator's story. And then there's the original stories, which we get to through root meanings. But then there's also this this insight, this precognition that some of the prophets who produced some of that literature had access to as well. So, you know, the Bible is a book of many, many layers, and we could probe it for a lifetime. So, uh, McKinney, I really love that question that you asked. Thank you. Final text and tweets. Tom, what do you have for Paul? Hey, Paul, Johnny in Glendale, California, would like you to talk about the reasons we don't get high-profile visitation cases anymore, such as Roswell, Rendlesham Forest, or Phoenix Lights. Oh, Johnny, that's a really good question. High profile, well, I I wouldn't hold your breath because I think there are still mass sightings happening. I think probably once we take our attention off the USA and start looking around the world, we'll find there are more recent mass sightings. If you go to a country like Chile, for instance, where there isn't the same taboo over the question of contact, you will have more recent stories there. Whether they are less frequent, I'm, I'm not sure that's right. And uh, even with that paper I mentioned before, the Senate briefing paper, once every six weeks, those are group sightings we're talking about. So technically, those are, those are mass sightings once every six weeks. So I think there's probably much more going on than reaches the TV news. I think so, too. Let's go to some more calls here. Let's go to Don in Kent, Ohio. Is that where you are, Donald? Hey, God bless you, you know, uh, George and Paul. Great program. And Alice from New Jersey, great call. You know, in Isaiah 24, uh, Judgment Day, God punishes the host of the high ones along with the kings of the earth. You know, Jesus warned us five times in uh, Matthew 24 about not being deceived, and it seems like we forgot that message in Revelation 19 when the kings of the earth fight against God uh, upon his return. What say you, Paul? Oh, gosh, that's a very layered question indeed. I think there are a lot of texts that we interp- that can be interpreted in many ways. So you can read it in a religious sense, and we read it through a framework of worship and obedience. 
But then there are other texts that I think are much more about cosmic conflicts. And we can misunderstand what the writers are telling us if we think it's all about worship and obedience. Some of these texts are much more nuts and bolts talking about conflict in space and geopolitical conflict on the planet and helping us to navigate those. But uh, for a fuller answer, I'd probably need many more minutes. So I'll just have to leave it at that. And sorry if that disappoints. Paul, uh, do you come across anything that would uh, tell you what kind of technology they possessed, what kind of propulsion systems they have? Are they bending space and time? How are they getting here? There are three technologies named in the Bible, which are really intriguing. So the, probably the most familiar is the, uh, the pillar of cloud, which is um, we now, having watched SpaceX launches and landings, we can picture what is described in the ancient texts as it launches and lands vertically. So we've got that kind of technology, which looks like rocket technology, which sounds a bit surprising for really advanced beings. There's a capsule that belongs to that rocket, which then uses rotors to fly. So something like a helicopter or a drone is described in Exodus and Ezekiel. So we've got very nuts and bolts kind of technology there that's quite surprising. It's noisy, it's smoky, it's fiery. But then there's something even more mystifying, which is that before these pieces of technology arrive, a hole in the sky appears. So this is where the writers say the heavens opened. It means there was a hole in the sky, and then the craft, the chariot of fire, came through it. And that suggests to me that there was subspace or pinging technology being described, but then also very 3D-fueled technology, rocket-driven, rotor-driven as well. All those are described in the Bible, and they're all in the Vedas as well. If you listen to the, the stories from out of the Hindu tradition, again, very very much like vehicles that we've seen in our time, other than the pinging, which we've only seen our visitors do. But I reckon we've probably got that technology at a covert level. Next up, we've got Keith in Dallas, Texas. Hey, Keith, go ahead, sir. Hey, George. And um, all right, um, on that note, uh, I'll ask this question, because uh, I know you had mentioned uh, the Vedas and you know some of the technology but obviously there's evidence of radioactive isotopes, for example, found in the Indus River Valley civilization. And my question is this, is that whatever conflict was going on, you know, it's going back tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, in, in your view, is it best to describe that as conflict between, you know, the gods themselves, these ETs, whatever we want to call them, or was the conflict happening amongst their descendants, meaning, as she referred to earlier, the people that they put in charge once they left, and did those people then kind of turn against each other? And so I'm thinking about, you know, the ancient Mesopotamian texts related to the Anunnaki, and then also um, some of the wars depicted in the Vedic um, in the Vedic stuff. And so is this all the same thing? Is it different things between, you know, Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley, or is it their best attempt to describe their memory in these different civilizations? Like, what are we talking about here? Oh, Keith, that's a great question. Yes, I do think it's memory, and it's memory of the same conflicts and the same eras of conflict. 
I think where we have stories such as in the Vedas, the Bible, the Sumerian texts of wars in the heaven, where it's technological war, that is the wars of the visitors conflicting over Project Earth. And to go back to Don's question where he's talking about how the kings of the Earth are involved, some of the kings of the Earth named are not necessarily human kings and queens. Uh, and that's especially clear in the Sumerian stories and I would say in the Vedas as well. So where it's technological battles, that's human memory of our visitors conflicting over Project Earth. And then I think we have a memory of the technology, an attempt to reproduce it, but certainly in the Bible and in the Mayan story, when it comes down to the human kings, all they can do is build copies that are not functional but they're trying to reproduce what they remember, the technology that was used before, the weapons, the flying craft, the remote communication equipment, so on and so forth. But I think essentially, yes, we have memories of wars that were fought using technology that we didn't understand, but we remember what it looked like, what it sounded like, and the effects that it had. Paul, where do people get the Eden book series, including the Eden Conspiracy? If you go to Amazon and Kindle, you can get all of the Eden books, Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden, and The Eden Conspiracy. So Amazon Kindle is the place to go. And you can keep up with me on my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com and at fiskind.tv. And on those websites, they can get to your YouTube channel? Yes, they certainly can. So there's the Fiskind TV on YouTube and the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube as well. I'm in the comments every day if you want to get into a conversation with me. But if you want a longer conversation, come to my website and I'll meet you there. All right. Thank you, Paul. Great having you on the program. For Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean LaDesor, Stephanie Smith, Chris Boros, Tim Banal, George Knapp, and Ian Punnett. I'm George Norrie. Somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.